Hey, what's up, everybody? My name's MJ, and you're listening to the MTG in Quarantine Podcast. As usual, I'd like to give a quick shout-out before we begin to my local game store, Guardian Games. You can find Guardian Games on the web at ggportland.com. It's come to my attention that there's a real dearth of content aimed at getting new players into the EDH slash Commander format. So this episode of the MTG in Quarantine podcast is solely dedicated for the new players out there who are just getting started into EDH and really don't know how to build their first deck and are interested in learning how to do so. Therefore, if this applies to you or if you've built 20 decks, I'm going to utilize this episode and the time we have together today to talk about some of the main tenets of the Commander format and then go through some of the main pillars of how you can build your first or next EDH deck and utilize some personal examples from my own building experience to try to give you some examples to work from. Again, before we start here today, I'd like to give another huge disclaimer that this is just my opinion, this is just how I build EDH decks and some advice that I only I can give. Obviously, this is your deck, and you should build it however you see fit. So ultimately, it's up to you, not to what I or anyone else says, that should tell you how you should build your deck. With that little disclaimer out of the way, let's get started. So the first question is, what is EDH slash Commander? EDH is a specifically social and multiplayer format that came around in the early 2000s in various iterations, and effectively takes Magic the Gathering into a more social and multiplayer side of things. Obviously, most Magic the Gathering formats are based on 1v1 competitive formats, as you would typically see with Pokemon or Yu-Gi-Oh! or similar card games. But EDH decides to take the mechanics of the Magic the Gathering game and try to bring it to three or four or more player games. With the idea being that you're not necessarily competing with each other, you're trying to find a uh, social type experience like you would technically with a board game with friends. That's basically what EDH is in a nutshell. EDH stands for Elder Dragon Highlander. Effectively, it's how the format began with a in the, the legend goes that several judges during an event uh, back in the day, again, probably about tw- almost 20 years ago, I'd say about this point, were taking a break from a standard tournament at, at, at one of the Magic the Gathering events and utilized Elder Dragon cards, which were at the time were extremely powerful, um, very iconic characters in the Magic the Gathering lore, and they utilized these dragons to kind of lead their decks in a way. That, like In a way that you typically would not have in a 1v1 card game way where all of your cards are in your deck, you have access to that card at all times. And all four of these, in theory, were Elder Dragons from the Magic the Gathering lore, and it basically spawned a brand new way to play, a social way to play versus more competitive formats. And the Highlander is in there, Because, again, as with the movie Highlander, there can only be one. The idea is that you're playing to try to see which one of these characters, which one of these decks, will win over all the rest. In kind of a tournament style, in its own way, within the game. So, now now that's out of the way. EDH, or Commander, as it's called from Wizards of the Coast officially, is what's called a singleton format. Uh, typically, most competitive formats that Wizards of the Coast has for Magic the Gathering allow you to have multiple copies of a card with the same name in them. Well, 
EDH is very different in the fact that it's a singleton format, so you can only have one card of each card name except for basic lands. This is very important because unless there's a card out there that says you're allowed to have multiple copies of a card with the same name in there, which there are very few but not very many, virtually all the other cards you can only have a single copy of. So you have to be really careful when building your deck because a lot of cards out there that say when you find another card with the same name, these will not work in the majority of EDH games. I'll get into the rest later, on, but again, this is singleton, so outside of basic lands, which say basic lands on them, uh, you can only have one copy of a single, uh, or yeah, you can only have one copy of a card with a name on it like that. So you cannot have two copies of that same card, etc. And the other really distinguishing feature about what makes EDH is what's called color identity. And color identity is based on the mana symbols in the upper right corner of a Magic the Gathering card. In EDH, you can only have cards that have the color identity of the legendary creature you have chosen to lead your deck. So again, in the one I have in front of me here that I'll talk about later, you have black and green mana symbols. Therefore, color identity rules for EDH states that all the cards in your deck can only have black and or green mana symbols in them. Obviously, this doesn't include colorless because colorless is technically not one of the five colors of magic, white, blue, black, red, green. So colorless cards can go in any deck. But as long as there is a mana symbol in either the top right corner or the text box of a card, or in some cases the back side of a card if it's dual-sided, then you can only use those in this particular deck that have black and green mana symbols. You cannot include a card that has a red mana symbol in that deck as far as color identity rules are concerned. So that's another thing that you have to keep in mind versus more competitive formats, the 1v1 formats, where you can do what's called splashing for a color, where you could potentially add red to a black and green deck for a variety of reasons. In EDH, you cannot do this. Now, again, we have that out of the way. I'm going to go to the next point here. You're probably wondering how you can build your first EDH deck. And I'll get to that here in a moment. But again, I want to harp on this point that EDH and Commander is a social format first and last. I mean, honestly, everything you do in this format is supposed to be social. The idea is that you're going to be sitting down, having fun with your friends, having fun with new people who you've just met playing in this multiplayer game. That's not to say that you can't be competitive in EDH. There are definitely a lot of ways to be competitive. We all have this competitive drive. That's why, that's why it's called a game. In theory, you're all trying to probably win, and that's okay. But again, you have to understand as well that a lot of players are also in EDH specifically for this social aspect. And remember, if you're not having fun playing Magic or playing EDH, then maybe it's not necessarily the format for you. And that's okay. Again, EDH is not for everyone, just as a lot of the constructed formats are not for everyone who plays EDH specifically. There are a lot of people out there who don't play EDH, and that's fine. There are a lot of people out there who play EDH specifically because they don't feel the competitive juices or don't want to play the more competitive 1v1 formats. Again, Magic Gathering is a game for everyone. I talk about that on my podcast a lot. And But again, you're here because you want to hear about EDH, and you want to be able to have fun sitting down at an EDH table with friends or with complete strangers at a local game store, online, or just anywhere at the park, whatever. It doesn't matter. 
you're here because you want to hear how to build your own EDH deck. So I'm going to get that into that right now. So there are two ways that you can get an EDH deck, a commander deck, in your hands. The first thing you can do is buy an official precon. Uh, again, precons are made by Wizards of the Coast. They seem to come out more and more often these days. They used to have four or five every year, but now they're coming out with so many. That I think there were about 12 last year in 2021, if I recall correctly, and they're really good. I mean, again, for about a 40 maybe $50 price point, depending on the deck, or in some cases less, uh, again, depending on the product you're looking at, the pre-cons that have been coming out the last few years have gotten really, really, really solid right out of the box. If you're interested in looking at one of these, they come seem to come out with every new set that drops nowadays, or you can wait till the yearly Commander releases, where you can just pick up one or multiple decks. They're very focused these days. You get a lot of cards, you get a lot of new cards, a lot of reprints from older sets. You get a lot of value, and they typically give you a whole lot more value of cards over the list price. So you're getting the same cards, which you, you could maybe pay 150 bucks for if you were buying them loose for about $40 in a nice cohesive deck. Does that mean it's going to be completely optimized? No, no, no. But they are a good product right out of the box to just shuffle up and play with without making any changes. And I highly recommend these pre-cons. If you're interested in learning more about the pre-cons, uh, Wizards of the Coast makes these. Card Kingdom also has their own custom pre-cons, which I can vouch for. If you're interested, you can check Card Kingdom out at cardkingdom.com for more information about those. But if you want to build a brand new EDH deck on your own, I'm going to give you a few hints, tips, and tricks about what I do specifically for my, my building of new EDH decks to hopefully get you started and uh, give you some inspiration about what you want to eventually build. And remember, it's really important here, and I want to make this very clear, that there's a lot of people out there who provide templates for building EDH decks. They're going to say, well, you should probably run this many of this type of card, this many of this type of card, this many of this type of card, and you shouldn't have any less than this number of this type of card. And that is completely fine. But I want to make this very clear right now that, again, like I said earlier, building an EDH deck should not necessarily be so siloed. Again, you are building the deck that you want to build. Templates are just there as a guide. You should build the deck that you want to pilot. Again, it may not uh, mesh necessarily with the most popular templates, but again, they are just a guide. They are just guidelines. They're not rules. You're not, you don't have to follow those rules to the nth degree. It is your deck. You can build it how you would like to, and you can make changes over time. That's what's so great about this format is there's nothing, this format is never going to be solved. You can build your deck however you would like to in whatever fashion you would like to. And maybe the deck won't work for you. Maybe you'll improve it over time. I don't know. That's up to you. I can't tell you how to do that. I can just give you an idea of how to get started. So typically in those templates, I'm going to at least use those as an example here. You're going to see various functions of cards in those templates that kind of give you an idea of how you break down your deck. Um, a good friend of the channel, Coach Jero, has a very simple system for doing this, where he kind of has the 10-5-5 system, where certain cards that have more importance in his mind are going to have 10 uh, cards in your 100 cards that were allowed in EDH deck. 
Again, you are allowed one commander or two commanders, depending on uh, various rules. Um, and you're going to have 98 or 99 cards in your deck. So let's say a tenth of the cards in your deck, in your starting deck, are going to have X function versus another card type is going to have five of, of that specific kind of card in the deck to you know give you a decent chance, a 1 in 20 chance of being able to draw this at any given time. And then another five for another category doing something similar, and then maybe 20 of this, 20, uh, 10 of that, and then lands, and then you basically have your deck. So Jero has made it very simple. He tries to stick to a very templated set of cards to try to make sure that he's able to maximize finding the cards he needs to at the right time. But again, that's just a template. You don't necessarily have to follow that if you don't want to. So I'm going to break down those card types for you right now and explain why they're how you can figure out what they are, why they're important, and give you some ideas of what to look for while also hopefully figuring out when you build your deck what is very necessary and what maybe you want to experiment with. So the usual templates, and again, I'm going off of the command zone template here as well, uh, say, are typically something like card draw, ramp, win cons, or bombs, depending on which way you want to look at this, single target removal, multi-target or mass removal, and lands. Obviously, I'm probably forgetting a few things here, but these are the typically most popular ways of describing templates, so I'm going to start with these. So we're going to begin our search here with card draw. Effectively, this is the very common uh, especially in blue, way of just saying draw a card in the text box. Effectively, the idea is you're going to be drawing, typically drawing one card per turn every time you have a turn in a four-player game. And the idea of card draw is saying that you have cards in your deck that allow you to draw additional cards so you have additional resources in your hand at any given time. Because if you're relying on one card per turn, you may not necessarily be finding the right cards you need. Again, in a 100-card singleton format, if you're drawing one card per turn, you may not find the card you need for a particular situation in maybe 40, 50 cards down in your deck, in which case it does you absolutely no good. So the idea of card draw is that you're able to add more resources to your hand for a fairly low cost in most cases, to be able to try to find the cards you need in any given situation more efficiently, more effectively. So card draw is in there to try to see if how quickly you can go through your deck and find what you need to to try to be viable in whatever game, whatever scenario you find yourself in. Card draw is most efficient in blue, where you're going to have a ton of cards of all rarities of all types, just saying draw a card or draw X cards on them, depending on that card you're playing. It's also very common in black, where typically you're going to be trading resources such as creatures or life for card draw, or in green, where typically your card draw is going to be based upon how many creatures or how many resources you have on the field at that time. Again, it's very popular for a lot of people saying that red and white are really bad at card draw. This is true, yes, because there are fewer cards in red and white with red or white color identities that say draw a card on them. So in some ways, this is why people say that they're bad at card draw, quote unquote. And I'm going to tell you that, yes, while they do have those deficiencies in they have less draw a card cards with 10 or 
there are less text boxes with draw a card in them in these two colors. That doesn't mean they're bad. Again, white and red are looking to do things in a different way. And again, things are changing right now. White and red have found new ways to draw cards. Red has found what's called impulse draw, which means that you're exiling the top card of your library instead of drawing it directly to your hand, and you have a preset amount of time to be able to utilize that card, but you effectively have access to it. And I'm not going to confuse you uh, by going through exactly what that means, but red has definitely given more opportunities to look at cards on your library and play them. And white is also coming around on this one, but as well, if you want to look at that specifically. But I digress on that one, is that card draw effectively is just make sure you have the resources you need to play the game. Then we move over to ramp. And ramp is trying to increase the number of land resources, the number of mana resources you have on your board at any given turn. And ramp can basically be broken down in three main types. You have your lands, which are the resource, the main resources you're going to be using in the course of an EDH or just any magic game in general. These are untapped every... You, you can tap these lands for mana every turn one time, and then when you get to your turn again, you untap, and then you can you reuse those resources every turn. Uh, you also have what are called mana rocks, and these are, are typically artifacts that allow you to tap for additional mana to hopefully make sure that you have more mana than you have turns. So if you're on, let's say, turn four, and you have three lands in play when you draw your card for turn four, you have access on turn four to three mana until you play a land. However, if you're on turn four and you've played a mana rock on turn three, all of a sudden, it, let's, let's say it provides you a colorless mana. Well, all of a sudden, now you have four mana, when you start turn four. So you play a land, all of a sudden on turn four, you have five mana, versus if on in the earlier example where you would only have four lands, you'd only have access to four mana. This is what ramp is. This is what mana rocks are for. They're typically artifacts, and they can provide you any, typically any color of mana, whereas some other ones have restrictions on them depending on your commander. There's a whole host of them out there. Again, you're going to want to take a look at these, but effectively what it boils down to is ramp allows you to get more mana faster so you can play bigger spells. You can play more spells earlier with ramp. And then the third are what are passionately called mana dorks. Effectively, this, these are mana rocks on creatures. Affects something like Llanowar Elves, which when you tap it, provides you a single green mana. Basically, you're not only filling the creature slot in your deck with a creature that hopefully can do something for you, but you're also ramping by making sure that you can get it down early to make sure you have more mana on a later turn to be able to do things. So that is ramp. The third thing I'm going to talk about is single target removal. Just like the name states, this is effectively trying to remove a threat from someone else's board. Again, you're going to be playing, in most cases, with three other players, and most likely people are going to be putting something out on the field that you want to have removed. So single target removal typically says something like destroy target X, destroy target creature, destroy target enchantment. Really? What you're looking for when you're trying to figure out what single target removal is, try to find something that says target on it. This is typically how 
you can figure out if it's trying to target a single card or multiple cards. You're just looking for target and then in the singular. So I'm going to be utilizing an example here, the card Doomblade, which is instant costing one generic and one black mana and says destroy target non-black creature. So effectively, this, is, this would be single target removal because you are removing a single target non-black creature from the battlefield. So yeah, this is single target removal. And in an EDH deck, you're probably going to want different ways to deal with different kinds of card types. You're probably going to want to have some single target creature removal, uh, single target artifact or enchantment removal, maybe planeswalkers if you see those. Um... There are ways, while there are ways to deal with lands as well through single target removal, there are some other stipulations about the social contract and why so EDH is a very social game and why destroying other players' lands is a bit of a sticky topic, and I'll talk more about that later. But effectively, single target removal is looking to deal with problematic cards on an opponent's board and getting rid of a single one. Typically, you're going to have single target removal in multiple ways, depending on your color. A lot of times, it's going to just say destroy X creature, destroy X enchantment. There may be a cost involved, especially if you're playing in red or black. Uh, again, these are kind of stylistic choices based on Wizards of the Coast design um, versus where white typically will have unconditional destruction on single target removal. Black, um, let's see. Blue will typically return cards to hand, but again, on a, on a single target removal case. And green kind of falls somewhere in the middle. And I want to then talk about what I'm calling multi-target removal. It's often called mass removal, but I feel like, especially when you're just beginning the game, it's easier just to say multi-target. And typically, you can find multi-target removal when it says all in the text box. Again, single target removal says target, well, multi says, typically says all. Again, not always. There are some cards that say that you select multiple targets, but you're typically going, this is typically going to be something where it says all. You're going to be playing a card like Wrath of God, a very classic Magic the Gathering card, sorcery for two and two white, two generic and two white mana. It just says destroy all creatures. This is a multi-target or mass removal spell because it says destroy all creatures. Again, Doomblade said destroy target creatures. So you only can get rid of one. Wrath of God says get rid of all creatures and put them in the discard pile. So that's ultimately the difference between those things. And then we kind of get to the last silo here that's typically common, and that are those are win cons. Again, win cons are effectively what your deck is trying to do to win the game. Again, this, this is kind of a catch-all term, and, and that's why I've never really necessarily been a huge fan of templates myself, is because uh, not every card you're going to be playing in an EDH deck necessarily furthers your chance to win consistently. Again, it depends on how you're building your deck, but for the purposes of this episode, we're going to assume that you're going to, maybe in these templates, you probably 15 to 20 cards that fall into the win cons, and these could be cards that could win you the game on the spot, in theory. Uh, again, that could be cards necessary for a game-ending combo, or something like the very common Crater Hoof Behemoth, which just make all of your creatures huge, and you can smack your opponents in the face and win the game through combat damage. Um, just any cards that are necessary to try to 
win the game, you know, on a regular basis, I would say. And then it also includes cards that provide you with the ability to get to that point. Um, again, this is where cards such, that are known as tutors are very effective. Tutors are cards that allow you to go find other cards in your deck and are typically very good for sequencing card interactions and getting to your win cons. You're able to find the card you need in your deck without necessarily having to draw it. You can go search through your deck, put it in your hand, and then be able to play it on that turn or on a later turn. So again, tutors are an example of a win con because they, they're, while they're not necessarily winning you the game on the spot because you play them, they do help you find the cards that you do want to use to try and win the game. So I would lump them under the win con category if we're using the template itself. And so again, I want to make this very clear that win cons don't necessarily have to win you the game, but they help advance your game plan uh, significantly. And of course, you know, I, I'm, I'm talking about a template here. You don't necessarily have to follow a template. And this is and, and this is really important. I want to make sure that all of you can really, really take this home with you, whether it's your first deck or whether you're building your 20th deck. There is no perfect formula for how to build your deck. Build it how you, you want to build it. And, and th there is a ton of tools out there. I mean, edhrec.com is great for doing this sort of thing. You can go find a legendary creature you really want to build around, and you can see what other people have used. And hopefully you can use that to get you started. A lot of people put out their own personal deck lists on websites like Moxfield, Architect, um, tappedout.net. There's just a whole bunch of them. I personally use moxfield.com for my own. I love the interface. They are a great, it's a great, great resource for sharing your deck list and also seeing what other people are building. And again, there's just so many tools out there. Use them. The internet is a great tool for building EDH decks. So definitely use those tools at your disposal. But again, build the deck that you want to build. Pet cards are okay. I feel like I really need to harp on this because you don't need to follow what everyone else has in their decks if you don't want to. If you want to, if you want to look at uh, existing decks and try to get as close to those as possible, that's totally fine. EDH is a format about you playing the game how you want to. If you want to build your own deck, that's fine. If you would like to mostly copy another deck and play that because you really enjoy it, that's fine. It doesn't really matter. You built the deck that you want to play, and as long as you enjoy playing it, then that is the whole point of the EDH format. So again, pet cards are okay. Maybe in some deck lists of a deck you really want to build, everything looks really optimized, or it's $1,000. Well, if you have a pet card that you really enjoy that's, let's say, 50 cents, but you just really enjoy playing it, throw it in there. You know, it's your deck. Honestly, you shouldn't have people telling you what to do. Use it. It's your deck. Play what you want. Play what makes you happy. And that really gets me into, so now you really want to build your first deck, but you don't know what creature you want to build around. And I'm going to give you a great example from my first commander deck here. But first, I'm going to make a huge point here, is that you pick whatever legend you want to build around. Uh, it could be something you've gotten in a booster pack and got really excited about. It could be something you found in a hobby store. Uh, it, it could just be something you found on an EDH rec search when you're going through the different color identities and finding out, I want to build mono red. 
So all of a sudden, I really want to build Grenzo, or I really want to build Krenko. You know, I, I want to play a bunch of goblin tokens and just play goblins. So I want to play Krenko Mob Boss. Well, all of a sudden, you say, hey, I like goblins. I want to play this deck. How do I start? And really, this is important because you should not let people tell or listen to what people tell you to do. This is your decision. You can choose whatever legend you want and build around whatever legend you want. I'm going to just say this with a caveat, that just be prepared to explain your deck and what it does at a pod, especially with strangers, and just be upfront with what your deck does. There are certain commanders out there that are very powerful and very popular for a good reason, but unfortunately... There have been occasions where people have run into bad situations against command certain commanders a lot of times, and you just want to make sure that when you go into a pod with new people that you just you're open, you're upfront saying this is my deck, this is what it does, and hopefully that'll be able to remove as much uh, potentially bad ill will from the other players as possible. So again, just be upfront, but honestly, just choose what makes you happy and what you want to build around. That's really important. And be honest about it too. I mean, a lot of miscommunications begin because players are afraid to say something about their deck or you don't want to provide some sort of information. This isn't college football. You're not trying to hide an injury, you know? You're not trying to hide something that you feel like hurts your competitive advantage. And it's okay to not really be sure what your deck does, especially when you're brand new to the game and you're trying something out for the first time. Just, again, just be open and honest that it's your, your first game or your second game playing with this deck and you're just giving it a try. But again, be honest with yourself and with your other players. You know, don't try to sneak something in and uh, then try to beat someone's face in with, with something. Because, again, it that leads to feel bads, and that kind of strains the whole social point of the EDH format. So again, just be careful with that, but be honest and have fun too. So let's say you found a commander that you really, really like out of a booster pack you, you cracked open, and you really want to build it. How do you, the player, the new player especially, go about building an EDH deck? So I'm going to go through an example of my first EDH deck and kind of just some of the things that, you know, I look at when I, when I see a commander card or a legendary creature card. So again, a legendary creature card is a creature that has the legend that says legendary creature in the text box below the art box. So the typical Magic the Gathering card is going to have the name, the typical art, the super type box which is where it says legendary creature and then the text box where it has all the the rules text or reminder text flavor text whatever in it and uh, again it's going to say legendary creature only legendary creatures can be your commander uh, for for the majority of games so i'm going to utilize the uh my first commander here and my first commander comes all the way out from Mirrored and Besieged in back in what was it, 2011, I guess. Wow, it's been a long time since this card is written. Uh, my first commander was Glissa the Traitor. Glissa the Traitor is a Phyrexian zombie elf legendary, costing black, green, green. Uh, she's a 3-3 with first strike and death touch, and the text reads, Whenever a creature an opponent controls is put into a graveyard from the battlefield, you may return target artifact card from your graveyard to your hand. So, again, when you build 
a deck with a legendary creature. Some legends provide more of a game plan or a roadmap for how you probably can build it than others. Obviously, some really promote one style of gameplay, whereas other commanders, the ones I really enjoy, kind of give you some flexibility, honestly, about what you can do. Is you can kind of build it two, three, maybe four different ways and still really ha- feel like you're getting somewhere. So with Glissa, there are multiple examples of how you can build this. Again, let's first take a look at the relevant stats. So Glissa is a 3-3. Three, three. So if you're looking at what's called commander damage in commander, you... As if one commander deals 21 damage specifically to another player, that player loses the game. So there is an entire deck archetype called Voltron, which is based on the 80s TV show about bringing multiple myriad, multiple entities into a single large entity that can then, you know, save the world. Well, the Voltron style in EDH does something very similarly. And Glissa already has three power. So if you hit someone with Glissa seven times in the course of one game, you can take them out of the game because she is your commander. Versus if she's in the 99, it doesn't matter. But as long as she's your commander, if you hit someone seven times, you can take someone out of the game. So what Voltron says is, hey, Glissa has first strike and death touch, which basically means that a creature she hits and deals combat damage to, will die unless it's indestructible because of death touch. And with first strike allowing you to get damage in ahead of t- ahead of regular combat damage, then hopefully you can kill a creature with Glissa and then trigger the second part there uh, on the text box about the target artifact. So the idea here is you could build this deck specifically around trying to get Glissa to hit your opponents repeatedly, utilizing basically what is a very good offensive and defensive text box here in first strike and death touch, which is very a very rare combination these days. And you can utilize that to force your opponents to not be able to block Glissa and then be able to ultimately try to do 21 commander damage and take your opponents out of the game one by one in this way. So that's the Voltron way to look at this. Um, another way to look at this is you could do Death Touch Tribal. Uh, EDH Rec Luminary Dana Roach has a Glitz of the Traitor Death Touch Tribal deck where every creature in the deck has Death Touch. And this is really important because this, this reminds me of kind of how I first built my Glitz of the Traitor deck when I was first getting started here. I really enjoyed Death Touch. I really enjoyed the black and green color combination, and I wanted to jam just a whole bunch of Death Touch creatures into my deck because they're very difficult to block. So, again, you could do something like that because Gliss is so, so difficult to get rid of if you have to block her in combat. So having a whole army of Death Touch creatures is really difficult to deal with, especially if you then look at the second part of the text box about a target artifact and killing opponent's creatures. So if you would like to do that, that's completely fine as well. You can try to find some cards like Finn the Fangbearer, which really take Death Touch creatures and turn them into damage they deal into poison counters, which can help you win the game. I'm not going to go into that right now, but again, if you're interested in checking something like that out, definitely check out Finn the Fangbearer, and you start seeing where this goes as far as infect damage is concerned. Third thing you can do is focus on the second part of the text box. That is, whenever a creature an opponent controls is put into a graveyard from the battlefield, again, either through Glissa, a Death Touch ability, or through something, let's say Doomblade again, also works, you may return target artifact card from your graveyard to your hand. So again, this is a really good way to recycle 
artifacts that have gone to the graveyard from one, for one reason or another. There are a lot of artifacts that sacrifice themselves. You have to sacrifice them for value. Or uh, if someone else has wiped your board, you know, let's say someone has used a single target removal or mass removal on your artifacts, well, all of them are in the graveyard. Now, so Glissa can then basically says that if you take out an opponent's creature and it's put into a graveyard from the battlefield, you can return an artifact to your hand from your own graveyard. And there's plenty of ways to be able to do this. Again, we can go back to the combat version where you force people to block Glissa. That's what we call lure effects. And coming from the card lure, which effectively forces your opponents to block one of your creatures. So you could have Glissa then hit one of your opponent's creatures, kill it, and then bring an artifact back from your hand. Or, again, you could uh, utilize a single target removal if you just need to destroy someone's creature. You can just do that, too. And Glissa will also trigger off of that. So, really, what this card seems to suggest to build, again, at the outset, in this vein, is effectively you're going to have a number of effects where like this, which either Glissa kills opponent's creatures, or you're going to utilize lure-type effects to slam Glissa into opponent's creatures. And then you're going to have a whole bunch of artifacts that have sacrifice effects where you have to get rid of them, put them in the discard pile to get some sort of effect. Well, then you're going to be able to get them back with Glissa, replay them, and that's basically your engine for how you're going to try to win the game. So those are really kind of three different ways to take a look at Glissa the Traitor here. And again, not one of them is any really any better than the other one. This is your deck. Build what you want to do. I first looked at it as a Death Touch tribal deck. Obviously, I tore it apart a long time ago, but I really enjoyed that deck because it allowed me to just play a whole bunch of Death Touch creatures, which made me happy. And, you know, that's the whole point of EDH, is play what makes you happy. And, again, in each different kind of deck there is going to require a different kind of shell. If you want to go with the Voltron route, you're probably going to put in some ways to boost Glissa's power. Instead of three, you're going to want to try to get her up to seven, maybe ten, maybe more. You're probably going to want to run a whole lot of what are called equipment cards, there or aura cards, which are artifacts and enchantments, respectively, that are going to boost her power. And also, ways to protect her. Again, utilizing auras and equipment that make it more difficult to kill her, to block her, um, to just get rid of her, stop her from attacking, etc., etc. Um, if you want to go with the Death Touch tribal route, you're going to want to throw in a whole bunch of cards that have Death Touch on them, or provide Death Touch, and then when creatures die, hopefully give you some sort of extra value here. Black is really good at this sort of thing, in, in, in the black and green color combination specifically. If you want to worry about Death Touch, black is really good for this sort of thing. A lot of Death Touch creatures, a lot of payoffs for killing opponent's creatures. And if you want to build, let's say, in kind of an artifact matters way, as I mentioned, the third way, um, you're going to want a, probably a lot of low-cost artifacts that can sacrifice themselves or they have some sort of enter-the-battlefield effect. So when they hit the battlefield, you give some sort of effect. When they leave the battlefield, you get some sort of effect. But it's probably ones where you're going to have to sacrifice them to get some sort of value. You can get them back with Glissa's ability and replay them. Again, that is how it's all up to you to figure out how you want to build the deck. I cannot harp or stress on that enough. It's about you, you, you. Build the deck you want to play, and then it's just fine. As long as you're having fun, that's all that matters. So now you're probably wondering, well, you know, MJ, now I have this deck, or I really want to build this deck, but what do I do with it? Well, 
there's two things you can do. You can do what's called gold fishing first. Uh, again, this is basically just, you know, shuffling up your deck when you're alone at home or, you know, just thinking about this when you're on the bus or driving in your car. Again, it doesn't matter. You can goldfish it. Effectively, you're just playing the game by yourself, you know, drawing practice hands, seeing what comes up in your opening hand. Determine, are you playing enough lands? I mean, uh, earlier on with the card types, I forgot to mention that you're probably going to want to play 36 to 38 lands in your typical EDH deck. That way, you're hopefully going to draw lands when you need it, but you're not going to draw too many lands uh, later in the game when you probably don't want to be drawing as many. So, uh, again, do you have enough lands? Are, are you drawing the cards you need um, in your opening hand, or are you just kind of getting very bad hands you really can't play much with, you can't really do anything with? And that's really what goldfishing is, is trying to figure out the sequencing of your deck to see if that particular mix of cards is going to give you a play experience that you want. But again, really, I think the most important thing here is you just play the game. I mean, you have a deck. These decks are meant to be played. Just play a game. Go to your LGS. I know it's difficult right now, but hopefully someday we can really return to our LGSs in full force. Go to a convention go to some kind of event, it doesn't matter, just play, or, or you can play online, there's a huge, thriving community out there, and I can give you the resources necessary if you're interested in finding Discord communities to play with other awesome people, there's a ton of great people out there who are just waiting for you to drop into their next commander pod, and again, ultimately, you just play the game, and make sure that you are having fun with that deck. And again, you're going to make changes over time. That's perfectly natural. New cards are going to come out, or you're going to find older cards that work really well for your deck, and you're going to make changes, and that's 100% fine. Build the deck and maintain the deck that you want to have, and that's all that matters. Now, before I get to the very end here, I want to talk a little bit about what we call Rule Zero. And again, this is the pregame conversation, as well as the rules committee, the commander advisor group, and the ban list. So again, EDH is a social format. Therefore, it's not officially sanctioned by Wizards of the Coast, technically. It is basically ruled by an, or not, not ruled, but is technically overseen by an independent party called the rules committee, many, whom, many of whom were actually really involved in creating the format in the first place, as well as the commander advisory group. The rules committee is in charge of trying to, you know, maintain the health of the format by ultimately looking at cards that may be problematic and may mess with the social aspects of the format. And that's what the ban list is for, is there's a list of banned cards in Commander that basically say these play patterns that these cards introduce are not fun, effectively. They, uh, for one reason or another, basically kind of break social parity in the game by basically making the entire game revolve around them. And uh, the Rules Committee decided those cards were probably more harm than good for a healthy metagame. So they decided to put those on a ban list. But again, there's no one telling you you can't do, can't play with banned cards. You just need to talk to your playgroup ahead of time. And the Commander Advisory Group is in charge of basically collecting information on cards that might be problematic or interactions that may not be so problematic. And then just making, uh, basically making some recommendations to the Rules Committee based on quarterly decisions about cards or interactions that may or may not be problematic and trying to just maintain a healthy game. So that's what the ban list is for. And rule zero is extremely important. I did a whole episode with my friend Brandon from Create Commander about this a few months ago. If you want to check that out, I can 
uh, I can definitely recommend it so well. It, it's a great episode. Definitely take a listen to that if you're interested in learning more about Rule Zero. But effectively, Rule Zero is the discussion you have with the people you sit down to play with before you start playing the game. Most people call this power level, saying that you're going to have low power versus high power. I don't really like saying power level because, you know, all of, powers of a deck are very subjective. You don't, you can't just put a deck into a machine and say, this deck is a seven, this deck is a two. Well, you know, it's all, everything's subjective. Uh, everyone, there's kind of a joke that everyone says their deck is a seven, but no one's deck is a seven. Uh, that's, that's kind of how I look at it. So personally, I like to look at power level as more of a how optimized and how efficient is your deck. Effectively, if you want to say my deck isn't very efficient in the fact that I don't try to find the speci- these specific cards to win, your deck is probably less efficient, less optimized. But again, it's a completely fine way to play. That's how I play. I love to play what's called Battle Cruiser Magic, where we utilize very big, splashy spells. We play at a much slower pace. We don't tutor for cards as much. Uh, card draw and ramp, we probably don't play as much of. We may play more removal, but, um, I mean, it's it, it's about playing big, splashy spells, playing slower, and really, really, really focusing on variance in the game. And that's completely fine if you'd like to play that. The opposite end of the spectrum is where you're playing very efficient cards. You're playing a lot of tutors, you're playing a lot of card draw, ramp, a lot of win cons. And maybe you're not playing as much multi-target removal, you're playing more single-target removal, let's say. And this is completely fine, too. This is a more efficient version, this is a more streamlined version. And that's completely okay if you would like to... I have a deck or two that fall under this category as well. They're fun to play. And again, you just want to make sure that when you go sit down to pod, you try to say, hey, my deck is played like this. You know, here's what it's trying to do, but maybe this deck isn't very optimized. Maybe I'm not playing any tutors or any of this other stuff, and it's just I want to play a giant 10-drop creature that I really enjoy playing. That's my pet card. Or you can say, hey... You know, the average uh, casting cost of my card in this deck, of a card in this deck is two, and I'm going to be playing five tutors to try to win by turn five or six. Is that okay? And again, the rule zero conversation with the other people at the table is either going to say, yeah, let's play against that deck, or I don't know, can we play against a different deck? And again, just be prepared to have these conversations. And again, not everyone is going to be satisfied by every game. It's perfectly okay that if you feel like you can't get along with the expectations set by other players at a pod, it's perfectly okay to walk away or to ask someone else to play a different deck. Again, the people who are really into EDH will completely understand if you, if especially if you're new, you know, people, a lot of people out there, the good people don't want to crush you. Okay, I want to make that very clear, is there's no value for a lot of EDH players in crushing newer players or lower power decks. There's no value in that because it doesn't bring you joy, so they don't do it. Again, I just want to make it very clear that it's very important to just be upfront and be honest with yourself and with the other players in the pod, but also don't be afraid to go in there and ask questions. EDH players love to answer questions, but I also want to say in a side note is a lot of EDH players will also try to, in some cases, stiff-arm you, try to tell you, well, that card's not very good. You know, why aren't you playing this or this or this? And you know what? I I got a lot of flack like that when I was first playing the game. And you know what? My response is, 
don't listen to them. You know, you built the deck you wanted to for the reason you wanted to. Unless there's a lot of bad faith uh, out there, just, you know, people telling you that you should be playing the most optimized version of everything. You do not have to listen to them. It's perfectly natural to want to improve your deck over time. But again, you don't have to listen to everyone's piece of advice, especially if you feel like they're, you know, getting angry at you for some reason. Don't listen to them. Stand your ground. Tell them you built the deck that you really want to play. And if they don't want to deal with it, that's their problem, not yours. Try to find the experience that you want to play. And again, remember, if it just doesn't feel like it's going to go well, walk away. And if it feels like you're not having fun in-game, it's all right as long as you tell your playgroup, hey, I'm not really feeling this. Try to determine a way to then get out of the pod if it just doesn't feel like it's working out that well. Again, this is your time. You're not stuck doing something something someone else wants you to do. This is your time. Have fun. And if you're not having fun, maybe it's time to walk away and find another pod that you'll have more fun with. And remember, this is a social format. If you're not having fun, then why are we here, honestly? So just if you keep those things in mind, you'll hopefully have a very, very good Rule Zero experience and a very good EDH experience. And there you go. You built your first deck. Congratulations. Welcome to the EDH format. It's a great community with a lot of great people, a lot of great social times to be had. Just remember to have fun, stay true to yourself, and just, you know, get out there and sling some spells. Happy gaming. If you liked what you've heard on this episode here today, you may enjoy some of the rest of the episodes on the MTG in Quarantine podcast that talk about all aspects of EDH, and especially the more competitive CEDH version that I'm really getting into lately. If you're interested in hearing those episodes, you can find the entire back catalog of the MTG and Quarantine podcast on the usual podcast outlets, including Google, Apple, Spotify, MTG Cast, CastBox, uh, MTG Cast, Podbean. There's so many out there. If But if it's a major podcast outlet, you can probably find me on there. You can also find me on Twitter, at, at MTG in quarantine, where you can also find a link to my link tree, which has access to, hopefully, I'll, I need to update it here, um, some of my personal deck lists in my own moxfield.com profile, as well as my Instagram for my costuming work, and my Twitter, as well as various links to the podcast on there. So check me out on Twitter at, at MTG in quarantine. And I'd like to utilize this opportunity to give a huge shout-out and thank you to all the awesome people who support me over at Patreon.com slash MTG in Quarantine. So, huge thank you to Mr. Big Benz, Anomaly, Draco Lucian, Neo Royal, Nick S., Infamous Fridge, Frugal Brutal, and Jen from the Filthy MTG Casuals for supporting the show. If you'd like to help support the show and help me make more awesome content, head on over to patreon.com slash Quarantine for more information. And this has been the MTG in Quarantine podcast. My name's MJ. Have a great rest of your day, everybody.